And we are live. Hello and welcome to the first ever Ushers of Horror podcast, recording from deep within the cesspits of your host's bedroom. This is due to that pesky thing called a coronavirus and the UK currently being on a second lockdown. We are eventually, when we're out of this second lockdown, we'll be recording from the Everyman, which is a, a set of cinemas. But until then, we're just going to roll with the punches and you'll have to deal with the DIY ethic. So... Without further ado, I think introductions are in order. So if you'd like to introduce yourself. Well, I'm Kozan. You're Paolo. I am. And we met at the Everyman Cinemas. We did. We found that we were both big into horror. We are. This idea came about. Um, yeah. In lockdown, what, what, be- what better thing to do, you know? There's not enough men creating podcasts right now. <laughs> to that. Uh, yeah. There's this basic podcast with people with basic opinions. So we're going to be, you know, the brush of fresh air. The brush of fresh air. (laughs) (laughs) It's all going to be fresh from here on out. So before we keep moving on, I'm just going to say bear with us both. This is our first time doing it. And because we're recording from our bedroom, recording off a computer. So some of the audio might be funny, but it should be all right. But hopefully by we get to episode 100, we're going to be a1 top tier podcasters. We'll have a ah. YouTube series then, you know, we'll, we'll be filming inside every man. Indeed, indeed. Is that, do I hear uh, Spotify calling for a promotion for a deal? I think so. Sounds like it. I, I do. So, because um, it's the first episode, I thought it'd be nice to do a bit of an intro thing. Quick Just origin story. A of... Hey, what, sorry? Quick origin story. Quick origin story, absolutely. So, uh, just so, you know, the listeners get to know us, uh, and it will also be wonderful, you know, the more listeners we get, if you send in some messages to say how you guys got into horror. <laughs> Quick disclaimer, if you would like to write in, and believe me, we would love to hear from you, find us on Instagram at Ushers of Horror, and we will soon have our Twitter up and running too. Exciting times. So yeah, so if you want to go first. Uh, well, I honestly couldn't tell you the first horror film I remember watching. But as a kid, I really enjoyed uh, Courage the Cowardly Dog. Stupid dog! You made me look bad! Uh, even reading books in, like, a primary school library, like, I don't know how young I was, but really young, just getting the Goosebumps book. I remember every kid always getting the Goosebumps book. Are You Afraid of the Dark? Used to be on Nickelodeon, but the one I was the biggest fan of was Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Dooby-Doo, where are you? We got some work to do now. Remember watching one with my dad on like Boomerang. Uh, A Boomerang? That is a shit. That is a blast from the past. Yeah, yeah. I really was into Scooby-Doo. The haunted houses, the fucking monsters, the creepy crawly. And those meddling kids. <laughs> those meddling kids. <laughs> um, yeah, just a bunch of stoners, like, solving mysteries. Uh, pretty much, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Yeah, big fan. But, till this day, I'm still a huge fan of, of The Simpsons, and uh, the, particularly the tree out. It's, it's fallen off as a show, but I will still watch the, the new Treehouse of Horror episodes. Good evening. I've been asked to tell you that the following show is very scary. 
with stuff that might give your kids nightmares. They're great. They're fantastic. Are they still making Treehouse of Horror? Episodes? Yeah, every season you get one. Every season. Oh, wow, I did not know that. And uh, that also got me into the Twilight Zone because most of them were parodies of the original Rod Serling series. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. So, yeah, was into the horror genre, not necessarily horror film, but horror genre, definitely, as a kid. Cool. Um, well, much like you, I remember watching Courage of Cowardly Dog and Scooby-Doo before going to school. So that was given my, my, my heavy dose of, of horror then. But um, I remember mum was big into horror and she used to have loads of videos, like horror movie videos. And Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 was particularly something that just caught my attention. But I, I remember just being interested in horror as a kid. I remember watching, um, oh God, what was it? Little Shop of Horrors, which I know isn't really a horror film as such, but then my dad thought it was a great idea to show me The Terminator, which I know everyone's going to go, oh, it's not a horror film. It's, it's a sci-fi horror film. But it terrified me. The bit where he uh, pulls his eye out and then kind of goes on this killing spree, that was just really scary. And I still think it's arguably a slasher film. But that and Jaws... Um, Terrifying. The idea of Jaws, you know, the idea that these that death can come at any instant and, you know, you're at sea, you're basically, you might as well be in space. You're that, you know, you're that far removed from normal reality. The, the point I remember, the first time I'd seen Jaws, I was looking over my shoulder, which, I mean, it's ridiculous, you know, because I live in the middle of London, but it had a very profound effect. Um, and, and credit to the movie for doing that. Now you just said that, it's just reminded me that neither of these are horror films, but the two earliest memories I have of being like scared of like films or characters. The first was definitely The Wizard of Oz and The Wicked Witch of the West. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog too. <laughs> and fair, 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 yeah. Cackle. I just remember seeing her in my nightmares at a very young age. Oh, really? It was like, like you were dreaming about it. I saw her more than once in my nightmare. <laughs> also, also, The Mummy. The Mummy remake with Brendan Fraser. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Omid Jalili as well. Who is Omid Jalili. Oh, my Jalili. God. So funny. But, yeah, there's particularly one scene where Imhotep, who's really evil... <laughs> <laughs> Even though in real life, Imhotep's meant to be a, a, a decent bloke, like a, a polymath. Oh, but wow, okay. In the film, he's some evil mummy guy. And there's one scene where there's this British guy and the, the mummy has taken his eyes. And for your eyes. And for your tongue. What? But I'm afraid more is needed. What? I can't even put like eye drops in my eyes. I'm so sensitive about my eyes and from being absolutely So eye violence is a no-go for you. It's a no-go. It's a no-go. <laughs> That's a respectable standpoint. Well it's it's funny you bring up non-horror films because the um from Cheeky Cheeky Bang Bang, the child catcher. Oh my, oh my god, god, that's another one terrified me. Oh god, don't. I remember I had to I made my mum record Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang on two separate VHSs, so I could watch the first half and it just be a really nice movie, and then the second half I'd never go. Yeah. The second half. I'll and same with, <laughs> have you ever seen the Never Ending Story? 
No. It's a little bit like Dark Crystal. It's got that same vibe. And there was like a, a hellhound, I think it was. And it just had glowing red eyes. And it would speak in this very deep voice. And that was terrifying. Going back to Shit and Shit Bang Bang, that, that guy is terrifying with his long nose. And he has a giant neck. He does have a and neck. Has, and a top hat. Does he have a top hat? He has hat? a van. He has like that not sort of van. That <laughs> it's like a horse and carriage. He locks children in and he's like, like lures them with candy and chocolate and they just... Oh, Terrifying. Terrible. And he had like wrinkle pickers, didn't he? Like the curly shoes and he would dance about. Yeah, something very, again, yeah. like um, archetypally quite scary. You know, it's almost like kind of um, like invoking Spring Hill Jack and all these British, I guess, um, boogeymen, if you like. Uh, <laughs> scary stuff and it's all they're all kids movies <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't think any film we've mentioned is over a, like a 12A so I mean parents you want to get freaked out by you know 18 forget about it you know it's stuff is infiltrating your house way before you're aware of it so uh, with intros out of the way I think um, we'll get on to the main bulk of the episode so again bear with us our format may change um, but we're going to stick with it until some of the listeners go change it or if we are recording a few episodes down we listen to it and go we could change this we could change that so there'll be uh, there'll be some changes for the first few episodes it's, it's, fluid, it's fluid it's fluid what's that sorry it's fluid it's fluid it is fluid it's fluid so for our first episode we thought we would try something a little different and bear in mind this was meant to be recorded and posted for halloween yeah it, yes it was yes i'm very glad you said that actually and today is friday the 13th of november which is quite fitting well ironically enough our episode isn't about friday the 13th but <laughs> it still feels like halloween it's you know Still autumn-y, gets dark now in probably about an hour. So it's, so that's, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm very glad this is Friday the 13th. So, we'll edit in a drum roll. Our first episode is the most underrated horror films. And we've picked two each, so we have four films. And the criteria was basically films that never get mentioned, um, films that don't really have or aren't really lumbered in with a particular movement or... Uh, say something like a video nasty. So these are sort of off the off the radar movies that have that don't really even have, that might have a small cult following, but it's arguably films that you would seek out after you've watched all the the quote unquote classics. Um, would you agree with that? Yeah, so, yeah. Films yeah. that I've not I've not discussed enough. Yes, yes. And we're going to be you know the front runners to pitch all these movies to all you. Uh, non-believers out there. Rated X. They say that nightmares are dreams perverted. I've told them here wasn't a nightmare but they don't believe me they nod and make little notes in my file not far from here 
There's a small town on the coast. They used to call it New Bethlehem, but they changed the name to Point Dune after the moon turned blood red. Point Dune doesn't look any different than a thousand other neon stucco towns. But what happened there, what they did to me, what they're doing now, coming here. They're waiting at the edge of the city. They're peering around buildings at night. And they're waiting. They're waiting for you. And they'll take you one by one and no one will hear you scream. So the first film I'm going to talk about is Messiah of Evil. Now this, this is one of my faves. Uh, released in 1973, also under the title of Dead People. Uh, it's directed by husband and wife duo. Uh, also, they wrote the screenplay as well. Willard Huck and Gloria Katz. Um, they're most famous for their collaborations with... George Lucas and they also wrote the screenplay for American Graffiti, Temple of Doom, they even wrote a, a treatment for the first Star Wars film. Uh, this film starts stars Mariana Hill. Uh, she was very big in the early 70s. Most of her big roles came around the same time. She's in another horror film called The Baby, which I'm, I'm certain we will talk about on another episode just for how batshit crazy it is. She's in a Godfather Part 2. She plays Fredo's wife. And she's in a, a Western uh, with Clint Eastwood called High Plains Drifter. This film also stars uh, one of the first out uh, gay actors in Hollywood, Michael Greer, who's fantastic in this film. Um, yeah, uh, the plot of this movie, it follows a woman who travels to a remote coastal town in California to find her missing artist father. And upon arrival, she finds herself in the midst of a series of bizarre incidents. Uh, so this film came about from the marriage year I just talked about, Willard Huck and Gloria Katz. Um, they were originally writing in 1970 or 71, the treatment for American graffiti. Uh, but then that got stopped for a while. And one of their, their agent who were uh, suddenly become a producer and uh, he came across, he came across some money that he managed to secure and he gave him a call and he said, look, I've secured a budget for a film. It's not a lot. But you get to make your directorial debuts. The only stipulation is that it had to be a horror. And uh, they were fans of universal horror films in the 30s. Your Frankenstein, your Dracula, H.P. Lovecraft. And they stated in interviews that because they were coming out of film school, they weren't that into horrors of the time, uh, of the 60s or 70s. And... Uh, they were big, big into art films, Italian, French. Uh, they mention 
Antonini and Jean-Luc Godard. And there's even a great uh, short documentary about the making of this film and interviews with both directors. And uh, it's called Code Red, uh, Remembering Messiah of Evil. You can even find it on YouTube. You can put a link to it or something. Yeah, yeah, sure. And uh, But the way I was introduced to this movie was uh, Howard Duck. I don't know if anyone's heard of this film. Stone Cold classic of a movie. It's insane. It's, <laughs> it, it's, it's not a horror movie, but I do recommend people watch it. It's just for how crazy it is. It's literally a man in a duck costume. And yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense. But uh, it's, it's funny. It's uh, one of those things where you kind of wanted to get everybody involved and just give them a doctor's check. Just be like, were you guys feeling okay when you financed and greenlit Howard the Duck? Because, because I need, I need, I need, I, I want to hear everyone that was involved in the making of this movie and just like, what was their mindset? I want a written apology. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want an apology. I don't want an apology. I just, I just, want, I just want to understand. I just want to understand. But yeah, this film was critically panned. It's got fourteen percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck. It's. It, uh, it had a budget of $38 million. It grossed $38 million. It's just, it's just insane. But yeah, I came across that movie, saw that movie, thought this is insane. And then I was looking into the, the filmmakers and just was looking on their filmography on IMDb and came across one of their first films, Messiah of Evil. And I remember just looking at the poster and just being mesmerized. Um... I, I, I didn't read a synopsis of the movie. I, I, I avoided a trailer. And I, I just thought, just from the poster, this looks like my alley. I, I want to watch this film. And it didn't disappoint. It really didn't. Um, I've seen this film almost more than any other film. It's up there with Syria for a film I've seen over and over and over again. Um... But it's it's fantastic. It's it, it had a very small budget, um, so it's it seems like it's just it's almost like an art film slash B movie. But it doesn't feel like a B movie. It, it, it it's you can tell it's low budget, but it's very well put together. Very well yeah. for like their directorial debut. It's well directed. Um, the set designs are incredible. Uh, like the father's house with the people with the outlines of uh, silhouettes drawn on the uh, on the wall. Yes, the location scout did a great job. Um, yeah, even the, the supermarket scene is so incredible. The what? Sorry. Yeah, the, the I was talking about the su the supermarket screen. Um, whoever's the the DP of this film did a great job. Um, yeah, um, about the shoestring budget. Um, all the cars used in the movie were owned by the actors or the staff involved in the production. Apparently, the most expensive item in production was Michael Steer's suit. Of course. Does he have flares? He does. The costume <laughs> is very <laughs> The hair as well, a lot of like, hair wax. Um, yeah, it was shot over the course of two months in 1971 and it wasn't released until 73. It was on the shelf for a while uh, then. Yeah, it was. Apparently it was originally also titled The Second Coming and towards the end of the film, investors pulled their money out and the film wasn't finished. It was re-chopped up at a later date. So I think in the interview of that of the making of the documentary, they mentioned that they didn't get the final edit of the film. 
But yeah, Frenchman brought the unedited footage, edited it, edited it, and released the movie under the title of Messiah of Evil. And it's what we have today. But yeah, I absolutely adore this movie. Also, if you see this movie, you will think, wow, this looks very similar to Jordan Peele's Us. As a lot of allegories and images are very similar to the scissors, the, the, the cut on the beach the yeah well the atmosphere especially the last like you say in the beach you know the last 10 minutes happens in broad daylight by the beach mm. um and it's very unusual to see a horror film especially where the climax is at the end of the film in broad daylight yeah <clears throat> yeah I, I, it certainly plays into those art house tropes i was just gonna say um mariana hill does a great job and she has like an opening monologue which is like one of the best opening monologues in any film ever um yeah, it's 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 very creepy. It's very tense, um, and it's like a good mystery film as well. Like it's a good, uh, it's kept up quite vague, and I think the reason it's vague is because they didn't get the final edit. Like, so there's there's some stuff that plot holes that never match that were never further explored, and I think they were meant to be, but they weren't. And I think it's good that they weren't. Interesting, like the Interesting. thing. That the dark strange man because um, the film definitely has like its own internal mythology uh, yes it uh, definitely does it definitely and does. actually it's, it's funny you say that it doesn't explain it, probably because they just didn't have the footage but yeah it kind of works within the film's favor because like you were saying before it's very lovecraftian it's not so much tentacled monsters but it's people constantly referencing to the great one that has yet to come and there's a thing about when the moon turns full um yeah, and and even the the ghouls or the monsters, whatever they are, they they remind me a lot of again, much like Lovecraft, the, the 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 antagonists in a Lovecraft book aren't ever properly defined. You know, they they usually explained but never one hundred percent defined. And whether or not it was intentional or not, it, it works. Yeah. I, I love the colour and lighting in this film as well. Similar, similar-ish to Suspiria, almost in a way, just how they, they focus on, on these two aspects of the film. And do you remember the, the albino character in this movie? Fantastic character. Fantastic, Fantastic character. Yeah, he's very good in this movie. Very creepy. But yeah, the, it's just a great movie. It's uh, honestly, it's only like 90 minutes. It's a fun movie. There's, do you remember the cinema scene? I was going to say there's, there's a sequence of great scenes. Uh, which, 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 all, uh, the, which is very similar to like Scream 2 odes a nod to that. And so does uh, Charlton Heston's Omega Man. Yeah, 100%. The, 100%. But the Even, scene in the supermarket, I was going to say as well, that is absolutely terrifying. Absolutely. And it's not like... Whenever the a character dies, it's not it's not like a stupid like horror trope. It, they seem like smart characters. All the characters seem smart, and they're just unlucky. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. They try to do the right thing. They there's one bit where the, the lady she's in high heels. She's like, "Fuck it, I don't need to be in these high heels anymore." She was holding a bag. She's like, "I don't need to hold the bag anymore." <laughs> All the right ways, but. Yeah, the characters in this are are smarter. They're, yeah, than most are horror. There's films. very well written logic, like you mentioned the uh, uh, albino character, albino character. Sorry, um, 
the scene where she first meets the albino character and he offers her a ride. And of course, every horror film trope, everyone watches going, don't get in the van. And she almost doesn't. She very almost doesn't. And then the film cuts to her looking around into the van and she sees there are other people. And like the audience, the character goes, oh, well, that, that's okay then. Um, she'll be safe. And then, of course, it being a horror film, it isn't. Uh, but it's just very well written, very well directed, and very well acted. And considering it's a low budget, it could have really just been the biggest pile of shit. Yeah. But they pull it off. But it, they really pull it off. Really well. Really, really well. Right. Yeah, without spoiling it, I just think... I honestly couldn't recommend a better horror film that most people probably haven't seen. Um and I just think you love it. I just think anyone who sees I can't imagine anyone seeing it, but I don't like it. it. It's, for me, if I was to rate it, I'd give this four marks. It's, it's honestly such, such a gem for me. Four marks, top marks, whatever you want to call it. This is, this is a hidden gem for me. And yeah, I, I adore this movie. Agreed, agreed. I'd, I had seen the, the poster years ago on IMDb, but it wasn't, uh, it was you that mentioned it to me. Um, and it's very hard to find on DVD. I'm a bit of a DVD hoarder. And I, had to, I bought it from, I think it was just a guy in his bedroom making DVDs. Um, the DVD I've got hasn't even got an age rating on it. Um, not that it's you know particularly graphic or violent, but it's just really atmospheric. It's a very singular movie. There's, there's, there's like you said, there's a great mystery in there. There's all these Lovecraft themes. There's arguably, you know, art house elements to it. Definitely... Even the, the ghouls in it are definitely referencing Night of the Living Dead there and even Carnival of Souls, which I'm sure we'll get onto Carnival of Souls one episode because that's an amazing movie. Uh, even, yeah, the whole mythology of it, it, it it's well thought through uh, and it's a, it's a real joy to watch. Great movie. I think all round great movie. And that was the trailer for a 1983 movie called Angst from Austria, directed by Gerald Kog. So Angst is much like Messiah of Evil, a mixture of a few different genres. It's a home invasion film. It's a psychological serial killer movie. And it basically follows uh, Erlwyn Ledger, who was in Das Boot and a small film called Schindler's List and the first two Underworld films as a, I think just a supporting role as a vampire. Uh, he plays the antagonist and protagonist, which we'll get onto in a minute, called Kay. Uh, he is released from prison and before he's even released, 
he is hell-bent on killing again, and he is convinced he will get away with it this time. So while on the surface, the plot to Angst is very simple. However, the technicality of the film, I do believe, enriches the film in some sense. So to begin with, uh, Cape, who is technically the main protagonist, is based upon the real-life serial killer, uh, Werner Kiniscus, and most movies love to point home this fact that it's based on a true story. And this is actually very similar to the real-life case, where he was released from prison and instantly tried to kill someone. Uh, and unfortunately, in real life, he succeeded uh, in killing a family of three, as well as the kitten, which, you know, R.I.P. Mr. Sprinkles. So, in regards to the subtext and the analysis of the movie, uh, the main thing, and I think the main thesis of this film, is that it, it purposely plays around with the protagonist and antagonist paradigm, where both feelings are intensified for the same character, where you're forced to follow this, this really awful human around for 83 minutes. Uh, yet, by the end of it, partly what makes the film so disturbing is that you understand what motivates him. In large part due to the film being mostly silent, minus his internal monologue to the audience. And all the way through the film, he's basically narrating his, his upbringing and why his mental state is the way it is. So while you do feel a real sense of disgust and fear towards Kay, mainly by the way he's physically framed and the look of Erwin Ledger, who is just, no offense to him, an incredibly ugly man. Terrible teeth. Terrible like, teeth. like Klaus Kinski. Much like Klaus Kinski, yes. Horrible to look at. There's even a scene where... <laughs> Probably not even where he's just at the cafe and he's ordered the the Frankfurt, the the sausage and a bit of sauce, and he's just yamming it down, and it's just so really uncomfortable. This whole film is is meant to make you feel uncomfortable, and it's again because you're inside the head of this character. Uh, so the reason I think that diner scene is so distressing is because it it really plays into his viewpoint of the world, where he it's it's very Freudian. He's sitting there chowing down on a bratwurst while staring at these two girls. And the film will then cut to him chewing the bratwurst, and it'll cut to one of the girl's mouths, one of the girl's eyes, very sort of fetishistic images. And it's very animalistic. You know, he, he again, you get the impression that this guy is the predator, and everybody is the prey. And it, you don't even question it. I think just the film is so well made that it just puts you straight into the mind of this guy. And again, that's what makes the film so disturbing, because you understand kind of how he thinks. Uh, <laughs> The film is very dreamlike, and most other characters are quite ineffective and passive, again, putting you into his perspective, and you almost feel complicit in a sense, um, which I think, again, plays into the, the idea of scopophagia, which I think this film really is trying to hammer home, that he is deriving pleasure of watching these people, unknowing that he will try and kill them. Uh, and the film is, while it's not the most violent movie, it, it feels, much like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it feels... Grim. It is violent. It, 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 it is a bit. It is violent in bits. Is it it not? is. I mean, the 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 scene where he stabs. You know, spoiler alert. He, uh, as I said, he does kill three people. And while it's not a complete bloodbath, it's brutal. The bloodiest kill in it is where he stabs. Uh, I guess the daughter of the family. Um, but it, it's it's kind of what proceeds afterwards. You know, there's an allusion to necrophilia and. Okay. It's just really uncomfortable. It really gets you deep down to, to your soul. And, and again, it, it, much like an Argento film, it mixes violence and sexuality really well. Uh, even when he's 
you know, he, he's literally defiled this body. He's still talking about a previous girlfriend of his and how uh, his first girlfriend, I think, quote unquote, was a complete whore and was into all sorts of S and M practice. He, he's a he's a mon he's an absolute monster. He's a hideous character. Well, it's very nihilistic. The whole film was very nihilistic, which I love. Uh, I, I think horror films should upset. Me. Very should reminds upset. me of. Henry, a portrait of a serial killer. Very much so. Henry, portrait of a serial killer. Even funny games to an extent where after a while... It... But they had charm. The, especially the main guy, he was charming in funny games. Yeah, I'm, I'm, all, I'm, all, I'm all thinking about the, the whole premise of the film where it's almost asking the audience, why are you watching this? Because uh, there isn't really... There is no emotional way into the film. The only emotional way into the film is either through him or, funnily enough, uh, this sausage dog, which when I first saw this film, it completely threw me that the family own a sausage dog and bless the dog, it tries to save its family in a, just a ridiculous scene where he's knifing this woman to death and this, you know, he literally just grabs a dog and throws it, it just throws it. Um, but it almost becomes a companion to him by the end of the film. Uh, it's odd, but it works. You know, the, the, the whole film is very angled, much like the cinematography, which I have to mention, uh, where... Uh, rigs were built to fit around the actors so the camera can pan around so you're it so you're always in the character's head uh, it, it's very intense much like a Darren Aronofsky movie you know the, the, the cinematography is very close very claustrophobic uh, some of the listeners may have heard Gaspar Noe talk about this film uh, where he I believe calls it the most uh, uh, the unsung the most unsung of all cinema masterpieces so if you go, we've heard this film before, you've heard it from Gaspar Noé, not yourself, calm down. Uh, but it's, you can totally see where Gaspar Noé <laughs> takes his influence from. It's a very Gaspar Noé-esque movie. Uh, but again, a very rich film, technically. Uh, a lot of German expressionism within the film. It feels like a documentary, and I think it's, it's uh, no coincidence that the director, uh, Gerald Collard, went on to do mostly documentaries and educational movies. I had a horrible time watching this film. <laughs> Good. I think that was the point. It's it's That's uncomfortable. Unnerving. It, it, he's gross. It's gross. Ugh. Everything about it, it puts you in his mind. It's like, oh, I don't want to be here. I don't want to yeah, be here. Yeah, it's like, get me out of this. Get me out of this. It's just yeah. very yeah, disturbing. Just, the fact that it's a real life story as well. It's just like, this guy was clearly a monster, a madman. Should have been in a psychiatric unit from day one and and in the beginning it's just he just walks into a house and just shoots a random woman he's like i don't know why i did it and it's just like sure we'll put you in for 10 years and let you come out absolute psychopath and he's like how are you going to let this man free to roam the streets like they're not rehabilitating it makes you think about prisons they're not rehabilitating people are they some people go in petty criminals and come out violent thugs Mm -hmm. Well, it's it, it, it's almost a, a systemic failing. The idea of rehabilitation has has just gone out the window. What's that, sorry? The idea of rehabilitation has just gone out the window. Well, I think the film might even bring in the question of uh, are, are prisons even there to rehabilitate? Well, I don't maybe think that's the same. Of course, well, I, don't, of course. I don't think they are. I don't think they are. No, I agree. I agree. Especially if you look somewhere in America where it's basically a private business. I don't really know what the Polish uh, prison system was like in the 80s. But funnily enough, the, the real case... Um, uh, Werner Kiskinski, uh, after he was recalled, uh, literally less than 24 hours after he was re-released, uh, the Polish government looked into the prison system and I then, I believe, set out almost a checklist for, um, where if, depending on what crime you're sent in for, you have to 
prove a certain level of, um, of rehabilitation. Whether or not they still stick to it, whether or not the boxes that they had to take. Boxes but this, this film, the, 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 the monologues from the psychiatrist as well, it's, it's saying, is he sane? Is he not? Is he just a sadist? But they conclude he, he was sane and he was doing it for pleasure. Yes. And he was yeah. in control of his actions. And he was just basically a monster. Which is why I think the the idea of claustrophobia is so heavily pushed in this film. You know, it, it's almost in every frame. You know, that he's just. I mean, he climaxes at one point by just dragging a dead body and just the thought of killing again. It's 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 just really disturbing and mix again. While it's not there's not really any nudity, but it, it it it's it's sexual in a sense, and that's what makes it so unpleasant. Um, and yeah, it's just such an effective film. And in a sense, uh, the film's not gratuitous, but it doesn't glamorize violence. Much like something like Last House on the Left, it's ugly. You know, he's he's not this Hollywood Freddy Krueger type person. He's just this sweaty guy who's just just almost making it up as he goes along. Um, and there's a there's a line in the film where I go where he says, "I thought it was going to be more dramatic." It's just grim and real because these these are horrible actions. And and funny enough, it subverts the whole home invasion thing where you're following this guy as opposed to the family and the victims. Again, it forces you into his head. There is no way out. If you're going to watch this film, just be aware you're signing up for a very uncomfortable experience. And before I forget, the soundtrack by Klaus Schultz from Tangerine Dream is very funky, yet very disturbing. It The whole film feels like a German cold wave art installation uh drone noises and it, it just works uh yeah very odd film can't um rate it enough though uh, one funny thing though was that the house was so peculiar i don't know what german or austrian architecture was like but it, it looks like sort of squatters like there's no bed there's just a mattress where where, where they sleep and the grandmother slash mother when she comes in when the family first arrives she just opens the, the the fridge door and pulls herself like a, almost a full glass of uh, whiskey. Neat. It takes one sip and just leaves it. It was just very odd, uh, arguably quite Lynchian. Um, again, very removed from reality. Did you have anything else to say about the film? Uh, other than I never want to see this movie ever again. <laughs> and believe me, I'm sure all the horror f fans out there, you should be, you know oozing at the sound of someone going as a, of a hardened horror fan going I never want to see this film again you guys have, I think everyone's life would be made a lot better if you all see angst so I would really give this film again top marks or, or, or an uh, 8 out of 10 or a, a 10 out of 10 depending on how nice I'm feeling it's a very simple film by plot but as you can tell, we're, we're trying to pull apart this film and analyse it. There's just a lot to it. It's a very rich movie. Um, and again, could only really be made as a European art movie. Uh, fantastic film. Funnily enough, actually, the film, when it was first released, was only shown in uh, porno theatres because at the time it was just so violent. Um, which now you look back and it, it's sort of funny because it's not really pornographic, but at the time, I don't know, the, the, the moral elite, bunged all of this in with pornography so their loss I guess but yes cannot understate how well this film is made cinematography amazing lighting amazing very cold uh, a lot of deep blues a lot of dark colors very frenetic very frantic fantastic cinematography
I'm the watchman of the Buffalora Cemetery. My name's Francesco Della Morte. I don't know how the epidemic started. All I know is that some people, on the seventh night after their death, come back to life. Is it true what they say? That the dead come back to life here at night? With your consent, I'd like to marry Nagy. Not as long, dear, as I've got a breath in my body. We'll fix that right away. Stop killing the dead. If you don't want the dead coming back to life, why don't you just kill the living? Are you listening to me? Don't you believe me? No. Tough. The next movie I want to talk about is Cemetery Man, also known as De la Morte de la Mort, of Death released in 1994, uh, directed by Michael, M- Michel, sorry, Michel Suave. Michel. Who is uh, known for his work with uh, Mario Bava, son Lamberto Bava, and Dario Argento. Shout out. As a second unit and assistant director on films such as uh, Demons, uh, Blade in the Dark, Tenebrae, uh, one of our favourites, Phenomena. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With also uh, the, the legend Donald, Ple- Donald Pleasant. Blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. You don't know what death is? You think I'm lying, Sheriff? I think you missed him. No man could take six months. I told you this isn't a man. If if you guys are if you guys stay tuned and listen to further episodes, I'm sure you're gonna hear that name over and over again. Yeah. We could dedicate an episode to Donald Pleasant. We honestly could. We have an unhealthy <laughs> obsession with that man. <laughs> All of these movies would be instantly made better if he was in them. How the Duck would would have won I'd probably best picture at the Oscars if he was in that. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Um, yeah, and it also starts stars as the titular character Francisco della Morte is Rupert Everett, and I adore Rupert Everett. Um, I honestly think he's the quintessential cinematic gen. Others might say Colin Firth or Hugh Grant, but we're not basic. We're not basic. <laughs> Rupert Everett, honestly, maybe his best performance in this film. He's just so charming. Oh. He's amazing. Yeah, and uh, basically the plot follows Everett, who plays uh, a beleaguered caretaker of a small Italian cemetery who searches for love uh, while defending himself from dead people who keep rising again. Uh, it's based on a, a novel called Della Morte Della More uh, by a comic book author, Tiziano Sclavi. I, I probably butchered Rolls that. Rolls off the tongue, right? Um, yeah, and the, on the movie poster, uh, the t- it says zombies, guns, and sex, oh my, and that basically sums up this movie, um, uh, it's, it, it is so much more, um, what starts off as a relatively straightforward zombie film gradually twists into something radically different, what exactly, I'm not sure, and I think that's the great thing about this film, there's so many theories about this film, um, I, I, I won't even go into them because I don't, I don't want to spoil it but I think the great thing about this movie is that it's vague and even the titular character 
never explain doesn't is not sure himself what's really going on um it the film breaks the wall a number of times i mean it has an opening monologue where he's where he's um basically discussing explaining what he's going on what is going on and that he says that there's this epidemic going on where some people die and are buried in this graveyard return after seven days and he, he doesn't they don't call them zombies they call them returners that's right god yeah that's right that's right that's yeah right. and the only way to defeat them is to split their head open and he says a spade will do it but a dumb dumb bullet is best and he's not really sure if this happens in all cemeteries or or just his which is set in a, a real town called uh buffalora in the in lombardy small town um in between like Verona and milan but looks like a beautiful town and to him he, he's just like uh oh, i don't even care it doesn't even matter if this is happening everywhere else to him he's he's just i'm just doing my job um and yeah it, it, the film is absolutely bizarre it it's romantic it's comical and it, it's just surreal it's really really surreal um it's almost monty python-esque in how sort of adam's family-esque even his 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 uh his assistant nagi who's like a igor type character yes he's so with the, he has a bizarre obsession with leaves doesn't he he tries to collect all these leaves yeah their friendship is, is is so sweet uh like he would tell him to hurry up your work now i'll buy you an ice cream um their friendship's really cute um but he's almost like mentally impaired and only like it, it, like only like he understands him and it's really cute um it's a very he, sweet movie yeah a very poetic movie um he, he's he falls in love almost immediately and almost love at first sight with uh, a lady who a widow who visits the cemetery to see her widow her dead husband and always uh, a bad shout there's almost there's a great scene early on in the movie where he, he's seduced her and they're having sex on his the husband the dead husband's grave and the dead husband comes back to life it it's it's it is funny um and also quite erotic there's a lot of nudity a lot of sex in this movie and very sensual and there's a lot of shots with rupert everett standing in the shower yeah and he's clearly been working out <laughs> he, he is quite the hunk in this movie also owns uh, a pistol which he uses so often <laughs> the john wick of zombie movies he is shooting something almost every minute in this movie uh it's great but yeah like we were saying it the whole town are bizarre as well like the mayor's bizarre the lead detective's bizarre the coroner's bizarre they all they all just seem like idiots like a bizarre death happens and it normally happens around the cemetery and and they're just like oh wow it's another one isn't it and they almost laugh it off and and like no one really questions the the cemetery man like he even says at one point to the mayor one day i need to talk to you about this cemetery but like they almost have like no care there's they, no real world consequences to an extent you know it's if you're the mayor of a town and you know the dead were returning back to life killing people off you would sort of have some strong words not not just go oh we'll talk about it one day yeah you don't but you don't ever it doesn't take you out the film you know i feel it's specifically put in there you know how some italian horror films in particular feel 
you can't tell if they're odd because they're just badly made or they're just purposely done with the dream logic. And I feel this is very much done as a dream logic. Mm. Um, yeah. The music also, I have to, uh, is really good. And that, you'll get that from almost any Italian film, especially Italian horror films. No matter how bad the film is, you're, you're always guaranteed to have a great, great soundtrack. And the, the score in this film is fantastic. Really does the job. Um, yeah, the, the, the set design is great. Um, the DP does a great job. It's even, it, the cemetery is actually set in an abandoned cemetery. Oh, cool. Yeah. Like extra spooks and authenticity. Yeah, and an ossuary, which is a crypt for bones that was used in this film, was also real. And uh, supposedly one of the crew members removed some of the bones during filming, but quickly replaced them the next day. He claims to have encountered an angry ghost following the removal of the bones. Uh, <laughs> I never believe these stories, but they're always fun when they come about, like cursed films. Oh, well, yes, we love a good curse. Exactly. Um, but yeah, this, this film is wonderful it, and it's 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 bizarre it's absolutely bizarre why isn't why is an english gent uh the caretaker of, of a cemetery in a random town in italy and the dubbing's great in this movie They're like some he's just walking through the town and there's 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 people with cockney accents talking to him it's bizarre it doesn't make any sense but it's amazing it is it is honestly uh yeah it's fantastic almost dreamlike um but yeah, I, I couldn't recommend... Very comic book-like as well. Very comic feel. Have you read the comic book? I haven't, and anyone knows where I can get my hands in this comic, please let me know. I, I'm we, need, we, need, we, need, we need a comic book plug to, to send us all this crazy stuff. Yeah, I would love to read the comic. Well, to put it into perspective, um, this is one of Martin Scorsese... Martin Scorsese believes this is one of the best films of the 90s, and I think he's st it's still in his top 10. Yeah, yeah. Martin Scorsese does, does, does love this film. I'm surprised it doesn't mention that on most of like the DVDs or. Yeah, because if Scorsese was a fan of, an, some obscure Italian horror comedy zombie movie, you would put Scorsese. You know, Tarantino loves to do. You know, Tarantino, I don't know, sneezes on some film role, and it's like Tarantino produces. You know, I don't understand why why he doesn't. Actually, doesn't since uh, now Scorsese's come out and said uh, comic. Oh, abomination to cinema. He says they're not cinema, in fact. But he loves this. He loves this comic book film. That's true. Interesting. Interesting. Oh. Well, maybe he... May, maybe... Well, because I, I guess to an extent it does feel like a, like, a, like a comic book movie, you know, almost like a... like a Spawn comic. It's very pulpy in, in, in a mm. sense, you know. Uh, and, yeah, it's not um, a dumb movie. Well, there's a great book uh, written by Alan Jones, who's a great um, film critic, and he called this the last, one of the last <laughs> good Italian horror films to come out. Um, and I think that maybe the Stendhal syndrome, uh, Sleepless, given, I mean, they're not as good as, say, the golden years of, of Italian horror, but very twisted, very sweet, um, much like Peter Jackson's Brain Dead. Uh, you, you know, you're kind of laughing at absurd things. Even, you know, you were talking about the um, the helper where he just throws up over the... The mayor's daughter. But it worked. And credit to the film that all these quirky elements, ne they never take you out of the movie. They just help the film. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just a hot movie. I mean, like, if you want to... 
And it's got action, it's got nudity. <laughs> it's, it's just amazing. I honestly can't big this film up enough. Rupert Everett makes a movie. And also, Rupert Everett was almost not in this movie. He was almost not in this movie. Apparently, an American wanted to finance... An American company was willing to fund and distribute the movie if Matt Dillon was cast as Francesco. Which is odd because Matt Dillon, I mean, he's he's good, you know, he's great in um, the House of Jack Bill. But I think at that time he'd only really been in Drugstore Cowboy. Or don't get me wrong, stuff. I like Matt Dillon. He's cute, uh, he's charming. But no, I think his American accent just—I don't know—it wouldn't be right. It wouldn't have been right for this movie. It would almost have been too. It would have just fit. Do you know what I mean? This whole film is quite jarring, not in a negative sense, but but you know the fact that he's. He's just a British gentleman. And it's, it's very clear from the outset that he is a British gentleman. Uh, and yeah, I feel like an American accent, or even if they had just an all-Italian cast, it, it just wouldn't have had the same zing. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't have. It wouldn't have. It definitely wouldn't have. Yeah, very odd, peculiar film. I, I just love this film. I'd give it a, If it rang out of 10, I'd give it at least a 9. Um, I, I adore this movie. Uh, Rupert Everett will forever be a legend because of this movie to me um, and yeah can't recommend it enough comedy horror, action horror romantic horror this one this is the one, this is the one for you very 90s feel to it as well um, yeah it's almost got, and I don't mean this as a bad thing but it, it almost reminds me of a Tim Burton film when Tim Burton was still yeah, quite good, you know. Tim Burton film, yeah, even like Corpse's Bride sort of film, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it's definitely got like a Beetlejuice because almost the the cemetery almost looks a lot like in Edward Scissorhands, you know, uh, where he was, uh, you know, the, the 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 castle where Edward Scissorhands grew up. It has that sort of feel and look to it. Mm. No, a great movie. I'd, I'd give it like a solid seven, seven and a half out of ten. For me, it I'd maybe give it slightly lower because it just feels a little rough. Round the edges. I think first time I watched it, it took me out of it a little bit. But again, it, it's sort of part of the charm of these films. You know what I mean? You're not. Well, actually, I think all these films we're going to talk about are quite well made. There's nothing really schlocky about any of these films. Uh... These people are on their way to a peaceful island paradise, but they are about to find out that it's a nice place to visit, but you could never live there. There is something wrong on this island. Island of the Damned. Tom, what's going on? What are those shouts? Where something strange is happening, and only they know why. You can see the innocence in their eyes. What you can't see is the evil in their hearts. We're getting out of here and we're going to run. Island of the Damned, where a dream vacation becomes a nightmare. Island of the Damned, rated R. That was a trailer to Who Can Kill a Child, also known as Island of the Damned. So this is a Spanish-Italian production of a, and it follows a young British couple who arrive on an island, uh, played by uh, Louis Flander and I'm going to botch her name, Perunella Ransom. Prunella. Prunella Ransom. I think she's Spanish. Uh, so they're on holiday uh, in Spain and they go to an island where the inhabitants have all been killed off and all that is left are psychotic children. 
So the film is based on a novel called The Child's Game, and the writer went on to direct a six-part TV miniseries in the 90s. Haven't seen that, haven't read the book, so I can't really comment on them. So, I mean, to, to, to start off with, the film, as you can tell by the title, is specifically designed to push buttons. And the, the, the film opens with the biggest button pusher of them all, which is an eight-and-a-half-minute opening uh, credit sequence, which shows real footage from Auschwitz, Vietnam, and Cambodia. And it's just... It, 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 it's just stock footage of bodies being pushed into mass graves, of child experiments. Uh, and most of this footage is almost child-centric in what it's showing. You know, it, it's showing dead bodies of children. And it's really disturbing. And I forgot that is how the film opened when, when I rewatched it for this episode. Um, and you said to me, it was like, is this supposed to be a documentary? I was like, what, what are you talking about? And I was like, oh my God. Really disturbing, really lingers on it. And it... I guess what can you expect from a film called Who Can Kill a Child? Um, it goes for the throw, and I kind of respect it for that. It, it treats the audience like adults. Uh, it, it doesn't pull the punches, and in a sense it has a sort of video nasty, arguably Mondo film feel to it. For those of you who don't know what a Mondo movie is, it was a series of films in the started off as a series of films in the 60s where uh, mainly Italian productions would go out into the jungle to record uh, tribes or, you know, th these films usually uh, involve a lot of animal cruelty or, or real on-screen death. Uh, and given the film does feel a little bit exploitative, but I feel this opening footage is then linked back in <laughs> at the end of the film. So I guess it sort of gets away with it. Uh... But it, it still does feel somewhat taboo-breaking. Though, it, it, again, much like Ang's... I, mean, I think most, my, like most of these films, it doesn't really feel gratuitous at all. So, how did you feel about the opening cre credits? I'd be quite interested to hear what you think. Uh, well, yeah, like I said, I remember first you told me to watch the film, and I remember watching the beginning and being like, is this a documentary? <laughs> <laughs> Intro is horrible. It's, uh, yeah, it shows from like the Holocaust to Vietnam and it's showing different wars and how children are greatly affected by wars and even even in in the film before they leave for the island down a, a coastal town in Spain and they go into a fit, uh, a shop to get batteries for their camera or something and uh there's a little TV at the front desk and the, the lady's watching the TV and she's... Because the footage is the monk, isn't it, who who set himself on fire to protest against the Vietnam War. They seem to like stock footage of real people. Yeah, a lot of stock footage. And yeah, and he's just... And even he, the the guy at the shop says, yes, was a, great, a, a terrible thing and the children are the ones that greatly suffer. So with the title of the intro and with the rest of the film, it's a juxtaposition of children are so innocent uh the children are innocent they are the ones that suffer the greatest um and then it's juxtaposing that with this crazy island where only the, the children reign supreme um in a sort of like children of the corn or village of the damned, damned way. way these were, yeah and even the title the title saying who can kill a child it, it it's asking the audience could you go there if you had to and if you ask me yeah, and I was on the island. I'd give it a go. I'd give like, it yes, a go. I could kill. I could, in fact, kill all these children. I could kill a few. I don't know about all of them, but I, I would give it a 
Damn. I would give it a go. I'd give it a damn. Especially that first kid that he meets with the sort of Dee Dee Ramone haircut where he's fishing and he just looks like a little shit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he I mean, does. He yeah, just yeah, needs he does. a good yeah. smack in the face. Not that we're advocating parents to... Violence yeah, yeah, and like, children, we don't agree with any corporal punishment. Or any, but if you're in this situation, yeah, obviously. Yes. Needs and wants. Loves the wrong. Loves the wrong. But in a regular situation, no. We're not advocating violence against children. Of course not. So I think, uh, apart, uh, apart from the, the sort of uh, flourishes it has with exploitation, the, the film is genuinely unsettling. It has a great atmosphere and it, it starts off slow and it's this well-orchestrated like, exercise in rising tension. Um, there's some great foreshadowing, like when the kids are playing piñata when the film first opens. Uh, and then later on, the when they get to the island which is inhabited by children, they're playing piñata with an old man hung up and they're using a scythe to try and hit him. Same with kids um, running around in the background and foreground of the frame. You know this film is called Who Can Kill a Child. You know the antagonists are going to be a swarm of children. So it, it, it's just baiting you. But it's, again, not exploitative in the way the film's made. You know, the, it, it isn't really until the last half an hour where things start to kick off. Not that it, it, it's boring, but it's just got this ominous quality to it. And funnily enough, one of the main influences for this film is uh, Hitchcock's The Birds, which makes a lot of sense because yeah. not only does it not feel like a B-movie, even though arguably it is, treats the children and frames them in much the same way Hitchcock frames The Birds, where they're just sort of like collective mass of evil. Um, I like, like the scene in The Birds where they're, they're walking outside the house and those. I don't even know what they are, those monkey bars and like one bird comes with another crow and suddenly yes. they're warm and surrounded. It's like that they do that in this film as well where there's one child and a couple more follow and then you look the other way and there's just a swarm of children. Um, yeah, yeah. Children are really, really actually un- terrifying in this movie. Way more so than Children of the Corner, Village of the Damned. This, this movie, more than anything, it shows the terror, not just the innocence, but the terror of, of children. <laughs> like a swarm of children coming to get you. I actually do think this is probably better than Children of the Corn. I think Children of the Corn's great until maybe the last 10 minutes, and it gets a little silly. Village of Dam's great fun, but it, it, it's arguably a little safe. Um, but it's funny you mention uh, scenes where, you know, characters, you know, the, the children are gathering from, you know, the corner of the frame, where there's a great scene where... They bring up um, why the kids are going mad. And uh, linking into what you said earlier about the scene in the shop where the shopkeeper says, you know, children are always a victim of war, that the husband in this film, who incidentally reminds me a lot of John Cleese, says um, this might be an evolutionary stage. Uh, So it's this idea that, you know, this next generation of children are are basically going to rebel and take over, which is a really interesting idea. And even... While they keep the, the reason for these kids going mad vague, I think it works to its credit because it's hinted that it might just be an idea, you know, this, which is a great concept for a film, you know, that this idea has spread throughout these kids. Which the feeling of being isolated as well on this island and there's no one we can call that we have to get that boat back, whatever. Um, yeah, it's really good. It's re- and the fact that the children rarely speak as well. Which I think is a great stylist. Children of the Corn sort really of thing. Annoying. Even though the main character in the first Children of the Corn, Isaiah or Isaac, he's great. But if they started talking, I think it would have got a bit cheesy and they, you would have lost the tense and the, the tarot. It's the fact that they almost never talk. 
Agreed. Makes them even scarier. And I think even with the title, and I was saying about the juxtaposition, the children have it in their mind who can kill it. Who, we can get away with this. We can get away with it and no one's going to attack us because we're children. Who's going to attack a child? Spot on. That's a spot on reading of that film, I think, of this film. The closest film that this reminds me of is Don't Look Now. Um, yes. yes. Wow. wow. Yeah. I, th- I think Don't Look Now came out the year after. So there you are for another little bit of like insider. Ooh. Um, but very much with, you know, much as Don't Look Now has a British couple going to Venice uh, but they've gone to a weird bit of Venice in this. It's a British couple that go to Spain and end up in a weird part of Spain. And again, much like Don't Look Now, you know, at first, yeah, spoilers for Don't Look Now, you, you know, you first think it's a child and there, there's this over, you know, the, the much like a Daphne du Maurier book, or much like Rebecca, where, they, you know, there's this specter of a child, you know, the, 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 the threat is still coming from a child. Um, very similar I th- uh, movies. Um I love the the father, the husband in this movie, and like his decent attempt of he, he has he knows decent Spanish, um, and he really does try. Um, and his wife is sev- like severely pregnant. Is that do you really say yeah, that severely? Well, like, I guess by the end of the film, it is kind of a severe issue. <laughs> yeah, she's pregnant. She's along the way, so he's got to do a lot and. But it's almost silly. Like he he doesn't face to the fact of what what is going on in the island early enough. I think he's still trying to wrestle with it, and early on in the movie, he's still trying to like save a holiday. <laughs> Just being like, this is really weird. Um, I hear what you mean. I hear what you mean. Um, but they are quite likable. I think there's, there's they are. They are. I think both actors do a great job. They both do a great job. And when he and when the severity of the situation finally hits him, you know, he turns to her when the kids are all lined up and they're about to charge. And I think there's this there's literally a line where um, he said, you know, you know, we've got to run. Uh, this is going to be hard, but you have to do it. And it it's realistic, you know. It's like I said, it treats the audience like actual adults, and you know, it it doesn't play around with things. And the other great thing is they're really well written characters. You know, the fact that this this the wife is pregnant in it. She has a maternal connection to these children. I think biologically, you know, the fact, you know that she understands, you know, the the the, the sacrosanct of, of of a child's life. And it's interesting that the, the, the couple don't go full Rambo on these kids to begin with. It's only, it's only yeah. in a scene where a, a, a kid <laughs> a is kid literally, literally aiming a gun, gun. He machine guns down, down this kid. kid. And the film, and the film instead, of instead of carrying, carrying on with the narrative and showing more violence, it stops. The film, the film, you know, the camera just stays, stays on, on the wife's face, face and, you know, and, you know it sings, 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 and what's, what's just happened. happened. And they've and crossed, crossed the line. line. You know, who can who kill can a child? Kill a child actually, actually, again, again, much like Glass House and Left, it shows a perfectly normal, decent, supposedly decent people of society are capable of really awful acts of violence. Justified or unjustified. I think it's a great, very nihilistic almost misanthropic undertones to this, to, to both uh, angst and this, which again, I think love nihilistic movies. I think horror films should, and again, doesn't end well for anybody, this film. Uh, and like I said, the last 20 minutes, it brings in a, a subplot with the wife and her unborn child and its relationship with the children. And then kind of links back into one of the reasons why these kids have gone mad. It's a great movie. Uh, though talking about Spanish, her Spanish is there's literally a scene where 
she she goes gracias. Do they say gracias in this country? She's like, yes, they do. You're in Spain, love. Of course. Of course. <laughs> when they're playing the piñata, she's blown away by the. She's never seen. She's never. You know, this is amazing to her. You know, she's she's arguably quite naive. I'm giving this to seventies. So maybe I don't know. British couples didn't go abroad. To he's, yeah, national. he's far more cultured than she is. Um, he's been to Spain before, and he's supposedly been to this island before where they're going. That's right. That's right. But of course, it's a horror film. It's not so, the same as when he last remembered it. I think something's changed. So, is there anything else you wanted to say about this film? Uh, no, other than I really, really enjoyed this movie. Um, it should be a cult classic. This this movie's it's fantastic. Um, yeah. Well, funnily enough, the same director, I believe, the name is uh, Nachos. Narcisco Ibanez Serrador. Who also directed The Resident. And I think this guy must have a real fear of children because both these films feature murderous children at their central, uh, you know, at the heart of their film. He also did um, another great film called The House That Screamed. Or I think that's also called The Resident. I think it's... it's oh, yeah. It's, oh, it's, yeah. We're talking about the same film. Yeah. The Boarding School. Yes. The yes. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. So he had a real fear of children. I don't know if he's... If his, children try to kill but then later in life he, he he became a game show host for unos dos tres there's one vez one um, yeah how the mighty fool we could do an episode on that <laughs> he's gone from doing like horror films based around children to like a children's game show as you do i mean it kind of it's kind of fitting you know he, he, his horror films are about children he goes on to you know, bring joy to multiple children in Spain around dinner time while hosting this. Be interested to see if, if you showed a picture of this director to people in Spain and if they would be like, oh yeah, that's that guy. And they have no idea he made these really <laughs> aggressive movies that feature children being machine gunned down. It's funny. It's funny. Uh, but he was 81, I think, when he died or something. He did all right for himself. He, he only died last year. Oh, really? R.I.P. Well, this is his memorial, um, so please gush. I have a gush. urinary tract infection at the age of 83. That, that. Undignified. <laughs> UTIs are painful enough, but to be at that age and to die of it must have been disgustingly painful. Yeah. You'd sort of have to see the funny side of things in, in a sense. Not that, you know, it, it's a terrible thing, but I think there are certain deaths. <laughs> you know, wasn't there a guy that... Um, there was a there was a bald guy and a and a, an eagle dropped a, a turtle on his head because the the eagle thought the turtle the eagle thought the bald man's head was a rock and he dropped the turtle and he killed the bald man and, you know it's awful but at the same time you know you have to sort of see the funny side did the turtle survive I don't know wow I if anyone knows I mean, this, if they can the fact check that yeah let us know if the turtle survived. Yes, any insight, or if the family's listening, please, um, we apologise, but is the turtle okay? <laughs> yeah, so, with that? I would give this film, like, a seven. Um, I think it's a very well, well thought out, well acted. I would give this um, film an eight. And it could, it could be just a complete schlockfest, but it isn't. Uh, it, 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 it's a, a very well made I think, movie. I think this film's great. It's really tense, great, great atmosphere. Great atmosphere. Um, Seem like realistic for the plot itself. Um, I'd give it eight, Mike. If you like Children of the Corn, you like Village of the Damned. This is better. This is better. 
Agreed. Agreed. Um, yeah, I'd give us an eight. Fantastic film. I'm glad you showed this to me. Oh, I'm glad you are. I'm glad you're happy. I'm glad. So, thank you for bearing with us. I hope that wasn't too painful for either one of us or you guys listening. So, we've given you some, I don't know, maybe homework or, you know, during this, you know, small lockdown, giving you a couple of movies to sit and ponder and watch over. And, hey, you know, if you guys want to start a podcast, go for it. That's a wonderful thing. What's our next episode, Paolo? So, ironically enough, our next episode, because it's our second episode, is going to be on sequels. Ooh, how clever, I know. That was your idea, to be fair. Yeah, it was. I can't take, I can't take yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great idea. So, yeah, next episode, keeping to the USP of this episode, you know, when we... This podcast, we want to talk about or shine some light on films that aren't as widely known or aren't as widely seen. And if we do talk about films that are well known, so we're not going to treat you guys like idiots. You know, the one of our USPs of this podcast is that we want to shine some light and give some love to lesser known movies or films that aren't really talked about. You know, of course, you know, if we talk about a classic, uh, instead of just another podcast doing another analysis, of it, we'll just talk more about the history or give a, a quick outline to people who maybe haven't seen it. You know, I mean, there's a... You'll be surprised, actually, uh, horror fans in their 50s, some of them still haven't seen uh, some of the classics, like The Thing and, and things like that. I don't really know where these people have been living, probably under a rock or maybe in the Antarctic. But, you know, you know, horror community, you know, uh, we're, we're going to assume you guys know some things about horror. But if not, and this is your intro to horror, then wonderful. Welcome to the, the misfit crew of... Uh, retrobates that we might do. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so tune in to our sequel episode next week, which is our second episode. So yeah, we're playing around with some... Uh, we're being witty, you see. Yeah. So, stay safe. Thanks for listening. And yeah, thank you for listening. And tell your friends, tell your family, tell your loved ones. Get on a little Ouija board and tell the people who passed over to listen in. I'm sure we can get some wavelengths into the other world. Peace and love, people. We'll see you next time. Bye.